Thank you for being here this evening for Basic Buddhist Teachings. Um, this is actually the last Basic Buddhist Teachings until March. We'll be heading into a month-long retreat in February. And so I'll be practicing, as I hope most of you will be with us as well. This evening, um, to wrap up Basic Buddhist Teachings, I'm going to be talking about the last two of the four reminders. And over the last two weeks, I didn't time this very well. We're doing two tonight. <clears throat> but we talked about um, the first reminder of our precious human birth. And then last week, we talked about impermanence and uh, actually ended up talking about death quite a bit last week. I wasn't expecting that. And so tonight, the last two reminders of these four reminders that turn our minds toward the Dharma um, are karma and suffering. And so tonight, we're going to be talking about karma and suffering. And for any of you that have, have learned to recite something over and over and over again, it's really difficult to start in the middle. You know, we've said this perhaps thousands of times. And so starting with three and four, I didn't want to stumble over it. So I actually brought, I found the original copy Sokazan gave me 11 years ago of these four reminders that turn the mind toward the Dharma to help me remember. So the third reminder on karma goes third when death comes, I will be helpless. Because I create karma, I must abandon harmful deeds and always devote my time to virtuous actions. Thinking this every day, I will examine myself. So when death comes, I will be helpless. That's how that first reminder starts. So we are picking right up off the second reminder of impermanence. Life is like a bubble, death comes without warning. And at that time of death, we will be helpless. And we talked um, briefly about this last week with the idea being that we use our sense fields so heavily to mitigate our experience, particularly our consciousness. I think a good example of this is how we might pace or walk when we're thinking a lot. I mean, how many of us talk on the telephone and walk back and forth? It's a way of mitigating sensation. It's a way of ignoring or distracting. And at the time of death, when the sense fields are no longer available in the form, that conditioned uh, arising of thought patterns, the habit energy, we are helpless to it. We just have this, this inertia of conditioning, this belief in a self that no longer is grounded in the senses. And so at death, in, in that sense, we become even more subject to our karma, you could say because we don't have this body. And I think sometimes when we look at the six realms in Buddhism, it's talked about as a human realm being the realm in which we can awaken. Part of that is the curiosity. It is that kind of the mixture of suffering and curiosity, but it's also the sense fields to some extent. And it goes on, because I create karma, I must abandon harmful deeds and always devote my time to virtuous actions. And this is a very um, relative expression of the path, to abandon harmful deeds and devote ourselves to virtuous actions, which if you look at it, this is the first two of the Bodhisattva vows. Three pure precepts. I vow to do good, to abstain from causing harm, and I vow to be with all things. So I will uh, function for the benefit of the others, and I will endeavor to so, so abstain from causing harm. 
And I think sometimes we don't appreciate this enough. We, we don't acknowledge, sometimes we get sucked up into the idealization of realization itself that we aren't willing to engage our world around us. And this is some of the inspiration for a talk I gave some time ago about kindness, just the simplicity of being kind. Now, kindness as an expression is not realization. That's not to say that we uh, are, are free from having to do anything kind and we'll just do whatever we want. But to look at our intention and this particular uh, set of reminders every day to recite these, to return our intention or our attention to the Dharma, to be kind. That in as far as we can to refrain from doing what we know is just being done to cause harm, to cause trouble, to just be self-satisfied that somebody else knows that we were correct, or we can at least acknowledge, well, at least I said something. And to come to the intention of the vow to work with others. So abandon harmful deeds. It's not something you do isn't just like you just snip a line and now harmful deeds are gone. We're told to look at it, bring awareness to that impulse to prioritize the self. Bring the awareness of how we put our identity at the center of our world and we position and strategize everything else around getting what we would like. And devoting our time to virtuous actions. This starts on the cushion. The idea of virtue is um, pretty uh, pervasive in Buddhism, although it's not something we talk about a lot here, virtue or merit. But the first virtue, you could say, is the willingness to train one's own mind, which has to acknowledge that the mind is unclear. It's very difficult to train your mind if you believe you're already clear about the nature of what's occurring. So the third reminder ends thinking this every day, I, I will examine myself. And so there it is, the practice, that in the midst of the helplessness of death, uh, endeavoring to do good, not cause harm, and the way in which that is done is through examining oneself, to look at one's own mind. The fourth reminder, which talks about suffering, goes forth, the homes, friends, wealth, and comforts of samsara, are the constant torment of the three sufferings. Just like a feast before the executioner leads you to your death, I will cut desire and attachment and attain enlightenment through exertion. So it acknowledges the suffering of samsara. Fourth, the homes, friends, wealth, and comforts of samsara are the constant torment of the three sufferings. And I think that this is perhaps one of those teachings that we want to take exception to. What it is not saying is that you shouldn't have home, friends, wealth, or comforts, but it's in the midst of the demand and the attachment that we actually live our lives, that the pinnacle of our experience and existence are in the accumulation of home, friend, wealth, and comfort. And we perpetuate that cycle. And I think that's why death becomes such a startling situation is because everything we've worked towards in our life, we recognize isn't coming with us. And so this fourth reminder brings us back to the first teaching of the Buddha, suffering, dukkha. Life is suffering. And that shouldn't be um, softened. That shouldn't be talked about in a way that just 
alleviates and makes people comfortable with that teaching. That should be an uncomfortable teaching. One to not be accepted or just believed in, but it's not intended to be a comfortable teaching. Life is suffering. How many times have we heard Sokozan say that? <clears throat> Perhaps more directly than most. And, and always, always following it up with not part-time. Life is suffering. And so not only is life suffering, but the Bodhisattva has the intention to cut desire and attachment and attain enlightenment through exertion. And there's a little, I, I'm not sure who this original um, translation came from, but there's a little um, section where Sokasan put in parentheses, I say, observe it. I will cut, observe it, desire and attachment. Cutting is, is probably the most common phrase we're used to, like cutting through desire, cutting through spiritual materialism. It gives you a sense of accomplishment. There's an action or an activity that will actually destroy, kill, eliminate defilement. And Sokazan's constant refrain is just observe it. If you see it's unreal, why would you need to get rid of it? If you feel like it needs to be gotten rid of, then you feel that it's real. And so that's kind of the conundrum with our suffering is that we see how it causes so much pain. We see how we buy into it, but it's not in the absence of that content that we are liberated. It's in the observation, the actual understanding that it is without self nature. And to just finish it off, there's even the little instruction at the bottom from Sokozan. Sokozan recommends, and I'm imagining Unyo maybe typed this. Maybe not. Sokozan recommends that you read, say, and memorize these four reminders. The first thing upon awakening in the morning and or just before each meditation practice session, contemplate the meaning of each word carefully. And so there's another thing that we do not hear often, contemplate. And yet that word I've almost always heard Sokazan use in tandem with these four reminders to contemplate them, to say them slowly, take it word by word and phrase by phrase and consider what this is endeavoring to point at. For some of us, this is a very powerful teaching. For others, it's not the way in which these teachings are going to resonate with us. It's not a matter of it inspiring you, but for those of us that it does, we may continue to work with us on a daily basis. And even if it doesn't, you may take some time to consider why is this a teaching that's been put forward over and over and over again. Um, again, as far as I can tell, coming out of uh, the Tibetan tradition and sometimes attributed to Padmasambhava, who is said to have first brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. So the four reminders, the precious human birth, impermanence, karma, and suffering. Are there any questions that we could uh, go deeper into this material with? Unyo. Unyo vowing. The third one, thinking this every day, I will examine myself. What are we examining for? Or what, 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 what is examining ourselves? I think simply put, it's it's examining that ourselves through the practice of meditation, that this reading these four reminders may have a more active contemplation to it. But when it comes to examining oneself, it's done in a very simple way that we call meditation, that the examination is 
not about what we're examining so much as just the intention to examine or to look or to observe or receive what is arising. And you guys, are you saying it's not taking a look and seeing what, whether or not we've lived up to these four reminders or other teachings of the Buddha? I don't think so necessarily, but I wouldn't, I would also say that you may do some of that. You may actively look at how do I relate to suffering in my life? How do I relate to impermanence? How do I understand or work with karma? Um, and that first one, how do I relate to a precious human birth? Do I? What does that mean? But I would say when it comes to the actual practice of sitting down and training the mind through meditation, um, far less activity, far less production. The production takes care of itself. We don't have to amp that up at all. Ozuku. Zuka Bowen, you mentioned the sense fields being one of the reasons why the human realm is an opportunity to awaken. Yes. What was the role of the sense fields in awakening? I think the body, which, as Sokozan says, something that you can hold still, is very valuable in creating a, a temporary reference point, a touchstone for which we can look at something that's so um, abstract or ethereal like the mind. So it's not necessarily like that. It's inherent in sight, smell, taste, but just the very fact that we're embodied um, provides a relative type of stillness, I think, that allows us to examine the mind. That being said, I, I can't necessarily speak to the other realms. I can't say what it's like to be a disembodied spirit or that that person can't attain awakening. But um, traditionally, that's how it's talked about, that the body and the human realm are very important for the path. The other realms have certain types of fixation or ignorance that makes it much harder to hear the teachings. With the six realms teachings, does that mean that we shouldn't, like if we notice that we spend a lot of time in jealous God realm, that we should endeavor to move back towards the human realm? Or? If you're aware that you're in the jealous God realm, you're probably in the human realm. <laughs> you're, you're probably... If you're, if you're able to look at it in that sense, um, it may have the qualities, it may have a taste, a flavor of that, but you're, you're acknowledging some awareness, some curiosity about that impulse or that intense emotion or feeling. So um, I feel that those that are in those other realms, like the hell realm, are less likely to be aware of that in a way that may, allows them to look more closely at it. Thank you. Further questions on the four reminders? Jen. Jen Bowling. Um, I noticed when I recite these that I kind of race through number three and I feel like maybe it's because it, it feels a little less tangible somehow for me versus suffering and impermanence and um, preciousness. Those I can... I can relate to practically. And I guess I'm wondering how, how can I better understand and better, more practically relate to karma? I don't think it has to show up as a resolution of the concepts, but just to bring some attention into that area, just being aware that there's some sort of resistance or a speediness, I think you said, to just kind of get through that third reminder. And 
I, I like to chew on these words a little bit. You could take just the start one day and just when death comes, I will be helpless. When death comes, I will be helpless. When death comes, everyone is helpless. And then because I create karma, maybe that, that alone, because I create, do I create karma? How do I create karma? What is karma? You could even go into some of what, what's something Sokazan said about karma. What are some traditional teachings about karma? It may never resonate with you. I know for the longest time, I could not stand the five skandhas. That just could, that would not connect with me in any sense. And then persisting, now it's, at least conceptually, it's it's something that really I can resonate with. And now I'm onto the 12 links. That's one I just can't, I can't get into. And I may never get into it but I should continue to look at it. So similarly, just continue to recite these and, and maybe take that one and break it down and, and take a phrase every day and look at it a little bit. Ask Sokuzan questions about it. Mozuku. Mozuku dying. What karma goes with us when we die? Without the body? I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say what happens when you die, but it, it feels that there's a tremendous amount of inertia we create through this lifetime. There's a tremendous amount of conditioning that doesn't just break free. We actually can perpetuate the belief in, in a locality of identity that we, we maintain through, through belief. And that's what I, I look at. Um, and as we've talked about, the closest realm we can talk about in this area would be dreaming. And it is just, when you really think about it, it's, it's shocking how rigid dreaming can be even in the most absurd dreams how we still insist on being a body we still insist on being this body and if not this body a different body um, we still insist on breathing we still insist on walking and there's no physics in the dream realm and so you can see how powerful the mind is and when it functions in a, what might be called the form realm where and that's kind of contrary of the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. The form realm really starts to look more at, at consciousness outside of physical structures. So that was my first introduction through Sokazan was talking about the dream world kind of as the form, the realm of form. So similarly, at the time of death, we may be surprised at how much continuity we we create through grasping and demand that really only exists because of the grasping and demand. So Kabang, the way you just described it, it sounds like you're going into habit formation. Is that the area you're pointing to that some, I don't know. There's certainly a lot of, of habits. There's a, certainly a lot of conditioning in that area that we take with us, yes. And so Kabang, if we have no control over our thoughts, what? How would you take a reminder like this and work with it if we're talking about the yeah it's it's not about controlling your thoughts it's not about getting them to function in any way at all and, and you could say in a way that's the very trap you believe they're real or you're trying to convince yourself that they're unreal and it's it's in the awareness itself it's we're, we're substantiating the thoughts we're empowering the thoughts when we try to get rid of them or when we're verifying or validating them so that's why Sokazan comes back to just observe it. Observe it. It's the awareness that seems to be so important because those thoughts may never 
shift or change into anything like you want them to. I have more questions, but I'm just curious about this area of the idea of karma that would continue after death, which seems like, is there, I guess, is there something beyond kind of mind or the thoughts that is being referred to in that reminder? I don't know that I'm clear on your question. Your dream analogy makes me think that we're talking mainly about thoughts, imagination, maybe emotions, things that show up in a dream might show up after death. So is that is that what you're is that what the third reminder is trying to point out to us? I think the third reminder is endeavoring to point out how we continue to perpetuate this cycle that we we actually set up the seeds for our own disappointment on a daily basis through grasping rejecting and ignoring and that if we don't see through that if we don't see into that what that is fundamentally that just because we're not in a body anymore does not mean we're we're going to be free from the the viciousness of that cycle of that grasping um, rejecting and ignoring could you read the first part of the fourth reminder again please Yes, forth the homes, friends, wealth, and comforts of samsara are the constant torment of the three sufferings. What, how do you, what is that? What is the con? What does that mean? The constant torment of the three sufferings. Uh, it's it's the fuel, it's the ammo, it's the raw material of the suffering. The three sufferings are, as Sokozan talks about, the pain of pain, the pain of alternation, and the pain of the composite that the way in which we differentiate or uh, assert subject and object is tied into those pains. As long as you're embodied, you'll, you'll always have pain of pain simply because of nerves. Uh, the, it's the sensation of ice and, and fire and stubbing your toe or going in the sauna. The pain of alternation is that being whipped around, having something going away having something you don't want, it sticks around. And then the pain of the composite is the one that is the hardest to talk about, the pain of conditioned existence. And that starts to get in the realm of when Sogzan talks about not separate or something that you'd have to be a first level bodhisattva to begin to feel. Um, and that has to do with, I think, an intimacy where you're not attributing cause, that you you're actually just in the midst of what is occurring. And the closest we may be able to come is the way in which we resonate with the pain of others. That's not the pain of the composite, but when you feel viscerally the suffering of others, to me, that's like maybe a spark of it. Ondo. Ondo <clears throat> You've mentioned this a couple of times tonight about that it's really about awareness. Yes. And it seems like that's what these four reminders are, are reminders about, it's about awareness. What would, I don't know if this is fair, but what would be the, the overarching reminder here? How would you state it's about awareness? Would you say it any other way? Sounds good to me. <laughs> 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know that it does need to be said in any other way. As I talked about, this may or may not resonate with people that you may want to go through these individually, but um, contemplate it on a daily basis to return our intention to the spiritual path. And the, uh, the ephemeral quality of everything. So there's a little bit of an urgency that today's the day I train my mind. Today is the day I look at this. There is a little bit of an urgency in these these four reminders to me. So, Kazan. Would you recite all four of them, please? Yes. First, contemplate the preciousness of being free and well-favored, difficult to gain, easy to lose. Now I must do something meaningful. Second, the world and its inhabitants are impermanent. In particular, the life of beings is like a bubble. Death comes without warning. This body will be a corpse. At that time, the Dharma will be my only help. Third, when death comes, I will be helpless. Because I create karma, I must abandon harmful deeds and always devote my time to virtuous actions. Thinking this every day, I will examine myself. Fourth, the homes, friends, wealth, and comforts of samsara are the constant torment of the three sufferings. Just like a feast before the executioner leads you to your death, I will cut desire and attachment and attain enlightenment through exertion. Are there um, basic things that we're turning away from when we turn our minds toward the, the Dharma bowing? You, you are, to me, you are reconnecting with an intention which is not a turning away from. You could almost say it's it's a, a shift in intention. It's 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 re-prioritizing what you're doing and looking at everything as the fuel for the path. But it's not it's not an abandonment of anything necessarily. The same mind needs to be observed. The same mundane aspects of your life need to be observed. But the priority is the observation that I'm I'm going to look at these, knowing that this life. I don't know how I got here. I may never have this opportunity again. I may never be able to see this because it could be gone tomorrow. Um, I'm perpetuating my own suffering, and therefore now is the time to do it. But it's it's I don't see it as a turning away from necessarily, but returning to an intention of the spiritual life or the spiritual path. Yoka. Yoka bowing. With uh, impulse, say an abrasive situation shows up and there's an impulse and we want to look at it, but we feel like we missed it. Is there something to return to? No, no. Thank you for that question. Be very, very uh, tentative to go backwards because backwards is not backwards. It's just, it's like, here's the impulse. Then you notice it and you've left it and here's going back to it. It's like, it's, it's actually another layer beyond being able to see what it is. So instead of trying to return to some aspect of content, the impulse itself, you may look at the, the reaction of, I shouldn't have done that, or I should have been more aware of that in that moment. So however it's showing up, that's where we look at it. It's not that you couldn't reflect on the sensation or the experience, but as, as soon as something else has arisen, that's the most important thing, not, not what preceded it. 
at least that that's how I understand it is if the awareness is primary, we're not looking at content to reveal the truth. It's the awareness itself of whatever is arising. And so we have to see however far we've layered beyond the initial situation. That's where we look at it. You know, combining the um, constant torment of the three sufferings, is that the, the not returning to what the impulse, the original impulse was, or is it returning to, or is it, what is that? The constant torment is the way in which we cycle through um, the three poisons, to me. I really, that, that analogy of you have aggression, you have an outburst, first poison. It shifts into embarrassment and apology, so passion, the second. And then it shifts into ignorance where, okay, we're okay now. And that sets up the ground to do it again. So there's there's no awareness. It's just constant resolution. Resolve the anger with remorse. Resolve the remorse with ignorance. Set up the stage for anger again. And so the constant torment of the three suffering is just the way in which we, we're, we're grasping and strategizing. Um, it's not... It's not the content itself. It's not the anger itself that's the torment. You know, what does the strategizing add to the situation? Confusion. We think it's very logical. It just adds another layer of complexity, covering up what's occurring, trying to feel safe, create reference points that validate who we are and, and what we've done, what we're not going to do and what we are going to do. And we use everything, we use everything to create that narrative, to create that safety net, positive, negative, and neutral. Ian Lowe, bowing. On the surface, it seems like there's a contradiction, relatively speaking, between the end of the second and the first of the part of the third. How do you work with that, Valerie? Well, could you start by saying a little bit more of um, how you understand that that contradiction? Or, yeah, getting long bowing. This body would be a corpse at that time. The Dharma we might only help, and then immediately followed by, "When death comes, I'll be helpless." <laughs> so which is it, Valerie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on who you are, I guess. <laughs> to me. Um, the inspiration there is to practice that while you're living. The Dharma will be your only help. Practice it. Train your mind right now. Be as clear as you can uh, coming to that moment of death, not knowing when it's going to come. But when that moment comes, don't struggle. There's, there's nothing you can exert that's going to alter what's going to happen. So the more just sense of being with or willingness to just observe that transition, I think, is what's being pointed at. So certainly, it, I mean... You've studied probably more than I have, and I'm sure you've come across contradictions everywhere in Buddhism. And so that's how, for me, and it may show up differently for you, but the, the first one is practice now. Practice while you have the chance, because when the time comes, there's not much you're going to be able to do. In the Tibetan tradition, it's like if you if you have the greatest karma, you'll you'll die with an enlightened master, and they'll, there's a practice called powa. The, the consciousness projects itself through the crown of the skull into Sukhavati, into the pure land of Amitabha or 
the copper colored mountains of Padma Sambhava. But that's only if you're lucky enough to die with your master sitting next to you and they pop your consciousness out. Um, most of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, thank you for that question. Michael? Like bowing. I was formulating a question around strategizing um, with what um, Miyoko was discussing with you. If I find myself strategizing as, if I find myself strategizing by using the practice to get out of suffering, what do I do about that? Say, be kind with yourself and just notice that it's not, if any one of us is being completely honest with ourselves, there's probably some of that happening. I mean, I, I know it's, I would like to practice not to suffer. I know when I'm going through my most difficult um, periods, I go right to, to, to practice. Why? I don't know. Am I trying to alleviate that suffering? Am I hoping that I can meditate the pain away? I'd be lying if I didn't say there wasn't some of that, maybe not in its entirety. So just being aware that we may be looking to alleviate something through practice don't have to stop that but you also at least in listening to sokas on which you have been for a very long time um you're not going to get away with it for too long you're not going to be backed up in that too much a little bit there are times where sokas gives me practices to try to perhaps take the edge off of something but usually not more than i need to keep going just enough to say i'm going to keep doing this I think you were one of the first people he told to stop practicing here for a little bit. It was like a week or didn't, wasn't there a week or two where you just said, don't do any forms? Oh, maybe yeah, if that happened, that was during a period where I probably don't have much of a memory of it anyway. So. Okay. I could misremember too. I'm, I would get that from Shodo. Yokuro, you, Yundao, Soko, and Daryl. <laughs> uh, can we enjoy the feast while the executioner leads us to our death? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Why wouldn't you? I mean, it's 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 like such a precious thing. If there's a pizza in front of you, it's not like well, I don't eat pizza because that's the cause of suffering. It's just know that it's coming to an end. The suffering's afterwards, right? <laughs> the stomach ache. You is um is being aware of the attachment while we're enjoying the feast somehow perpetuating the attachment to it? I don't know. I don't think so necessarily. It's again, we're not looking to use the teachings to resolve apparent contradictions. So just enjoy it. You you don't have to like talk yourself out of a good time. You might flash on it, but if you're enjoying yourself, you don't need to bully yourself into saying, oh, this is coming to an end. You're you're a fool for enjoying this. You may as well get out now. No, enjoy it and then enjoy the disappointment afterwards. So I, I, I don't think it's a matter of just um, homogenizing our experience where we're just like monotone, uh, unfeeling, everything feels, tastes, smells, sounds the same. But we also have the realistic idea that it can't last. And the more I am 
fixated on maintaining, the more painful that transition will be. Pizza is like the, the worst because I can't moderate myself. And I know going into it, I'm just like, I'm going to have a stomach ache at the end of this. I'm going to have six pieces. Mozuku. Mozuku bowing resonate with you described the cycle of outflowing out of anger and then apologizing, sort of pacifying and saying everything's okay and setting it up to do it again. It, let me ask about my first assumption. My first assumption is that the ideal way out of that cycle would be to not outflow out of anger or to be, not even hang on to the anger. Is that, what is the way out of that cycle? See that it's unreal so that it doesn't have to stop. It's, it's not how how do you, what's the ideal way or what's the best way to get out of that cycle? The cycle is unreal. And if you think it has to stop, then we're right back into enlightenment and sentient beings. And so don't, don't waste your time trying to break that cycle necessarily. Just be aware of wherever you are in that cycle, you would say you're more outflowing, more grasping, more shutting down. Go ahead, Jishin. Jishin, bye. What is observing the transition when we are dying, and uh, especially when actually the actual death happens after death? I don't know. I don't know what that experience would be like for any one of us. I think it's, again, and as far as we can, prioritizing that intention going into it, that the more we practice returning, the more we practice the intention to observe in our day-to-day life, it's just another aspect of phenomena that's coming. It may be the aspect of phenomena that calls itself fear or insecurity or pain, but the awareness itself is, is what we're endeavoring to work with. Go ahead, Sokarin. Sokarin bowing. If we find ourselves having difficulty being kind, what is one step below that? Being neutral. <laughs> um, I come back to the two instructions I received were, were hold your seat and don't hook up your vocal cords. Hold your seat, don't hook up your vocal cords. But don't abandon the intention to be kind. Don't don't lock down on that. If you can, the simplest thing of just saying hello. I mean, what what kind of suffering must we be experiencing if we can't even bring ourselves to say hi? How are you doing? I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying that circumstance wouldn't arise. But kindness doesn't have to be this huge expression. It can just be a basic communication, a basic recognizing a human being. I mean, at at its core, is, can you honestly look at anyone and, and say, I don't want them to be well. I want them to suffer. That story can come up. I'm not saying we don't have that story, but it's hard to look at a human being and say, no, I actively want you to be in pain. So I think... You know, looking at somebody, if nothing else, maybe there's no formal verbal communication, but don't look away. You could say, don't look away. Thank you. Before we close, I really appreciated finding this paper. I don't know if you recognize this, Sokazan. Sokazan sent me in the retreat 10 or 12 years ago. 
and he had me doing prostrations and learning a long refuge vow recitation. And he insisted that I draw pictures of our lineage holders. And I drew a picture of Sokazan. Oh, here's Sokazan. And Colbin's got like the tufts of hair. He, he sometimes had a little hair on the sides. And I don't know why Dogen doesn't have a mouth. <laughs> Bodhidharma's got a big beard. Can you hold it up one more? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the one with the frown. And the furrowed brow. <laughs> we can close, sir, and I appreciate all of you sharing your practice with me, and I will hopefully see you all for Ango. Join us if you can.